please stand and turn with me in your Bibles to Judges 20. We're going to forego a New Testament reading tonight just because this is a long chapter. We're going to read the whole thing. So Judges 20. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mitzpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now, the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mitzpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come... They may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came out together, came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, every one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah, and the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin, and the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin. 
the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. And the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the open country about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, they are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Ma'ara Geba. And there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel. And the battle was hard, but the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Nohah as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to Gidom, and 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness, to the rock of Rimmon, 
and remained at the rock of Rimmon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men, and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Amen. You may be seated. Abraham Lincoln was uh, inaugurated for his second term as president in March of 1865. It was just a month before the Confederate surrender at Appomattox. Uh, So the war was almost over, right? And um, Lincoln, at this point, was was seeking to start to kind of pave the way for post-war reconciliation between the North and the South. Um, In his second inaugural address then, that day, it's very striking when you read it. It's not very long. How uh, Lincoln looks back on the whole war, describing it not as God's judgment just against the South, which you might expect the kind of victorious leader to be kind of pronouncing kind of a, from a position of, of judgment, we are in the right and our enemies have been defeated by God. That's not how Lincoln describes the war, though. He really describes it in that speech from his point of view as God's judgment, perhaps against America as a whole, North and South. He refers to American slavery, not just Southern. And he supposes, what if God has given to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers and living God always ascribe to him? He says, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk until every drop of blood Drawn with the lash shall be paid with it by another, drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Thanks for bearing with that rather extended quotation. I, I quote all of that and ascribe this speech. Um, neither to agree nor disagree with Lincoln tonight in uh, his reading of God's providence with regard to this American Civil War. The reason I bring this up is that I do think that speech, which is quite eloquent, provides for us, um, I think, a fruitful analogy for the way the historian of Judges portrays this great conflict between Israel and Benjamin that occupies this chapter of Scripture. Yet, once again, if we come to this chapter insisting on asking questions like, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys in this chapter? Then we will quickly get lost and confused because those kinds of questions are, well, they're the wrong questions. Not just that they're hard to answer, they're, they're the wrong questions. We want to make sure that we try to stick tonight to that alternative question, that better question that we've been trying to train ourselves to ask Whenever we read Bible history, 
which is what is the Lord doing in this chapter of Israel's life. And we're going to divide this chapter into three parts. We're going to call them first, the mustering of Israel, verses 1 through 17. Then number two, the defeat of Israel, verses 18 to 28. And then number three, the victory of Israel. But put a question mark after that. The victory of Israel. Okay, and that's to the end of the chapter. So the mustering of Israel, the defeat of Israel, and then the victory of Israel, question mark. All right. So the mustering of Israel to begin with. A couple weeks ago, I explained the meaning of this phrase that you find in verse 1, all the people of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. And uh, you may remember that Dan was in the very far north of Israel. Beersheba was in the very far south. So the whole nation... Um, all of the tribes, even the ones it says that were living on the eastern side of the Jordan, the ones in Gilead. This is comprehensive. They all assembled as one man, it says, to the Lord at Mitzvah. And if you think about it, this is really a very remarkable coalition that comes together here. It's the whole covenant community coalescing. They're galvanized around this common cause, with the exception, of course, of Benjamin. And so in one sense, our, re- our reaction to that generally should be, well, isn't that great? This, is, this seems like such a healthy thing for Israel to be united around such a common cause. But there are a number of factors that should probably dampen our enthusiasm for this great coalition of Israelites. Factors involving the who, the what, and the how of this great assembly. So first, the who. You could ask, who has called for this great assembly? And the answer is, it's that Levite that we met in chapter 19. And you might think, well, he has every right, doesn't he, to be angry at the city of Gibeah? Who better than he to call Israel to arms for justice against the great injustice and violence that was committed there? Um, Sort of, but let's not forget let's not forget that Levite's own role in what happened at Gibeah. Right? Yes, it was his concubine who was assaulted and died, but don't forget that it was he who who pushed her out the door to save himself. He doesn't mention that in his report, does he? Oh, the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night, and they meant to kill me. And they violated my concubine, and she is dead. It's a very sanitized version of what actually happened. And it prevent, presents the Levite solely as the victim. Remember last time we talked about this, how uh, we often have to be very careful not to assume that just because someone is a victim, that they are not, therefore, a victimizer, and vice versa. Because, as we talked about last time, people are always both sinners and and sinned against. That's everybody's condition. And this is the kind of thing that happens when God's people um, uncritically accept the narrative that somebody is only a victim, and they miss how that person is also actually part of the problem, something we we need to be aware of. Um, There's another angle to this who aspect of this gathering. Um, more than one commentator points out here, this chapter really invites us to compare this, this very energetic response of all of Israel to this man with basically all of the other judges earlier in the book. 
when was the last time you saw all of Israel coming out as one man to do anything? Anything at all? For for all the enemies in this book that God's people have faced, for all of the battles that have been fought, have you ever seen any leader since Joshua assemble the entire covenant community for any purpose? And yet this chapter shows that it can be done. It can be done. If this Levite could do it, then why don't we see more of this sort of thing going on throughout the book of Judges? That's the question we're kind of being provoked to ask here. And we also need to ask, what are they coming out for? What are they coming out to do? And this is the, the what red flag. Why is it that the one time all Israel gathers together as one man to do something all together, why is it that it's to fight against one of their own tribes? Not against the Canaanites. This is against other Israelites, who, granted, have acted like Canaanites, as we talked about last time. But still, Israel's mission that God gave to them was the conquest, which in chapters 1 and 2, of course, they failed dismally to complete. So why couldn't they muster the whole nation together as one man to work on that problem? To help one another to conquer those territories that had, they had left undone. And it's not necessarily wrong here that they're assembling against Benjamin. That might have needed to happen. But it just raises the question, why now and not at other times? So often we can spend a great deal of time and energy on things that are not necessarily wrong. They're not necessarily bad. They're not necessarily sinful. In fact, they may be things that the Bible talks about. But they're not the th- things that the Bible treats as the greatest priorities. We need to be self-critical about the way we spend our time and energy, invest ourselves in our life's work to ask, even though this is good, is this the best thing? Is this what the Lord would consider the most important thing for me to be doing? Are my priorities aligned with God's kingdom priorities? Is my sense of uh, what I want to be doing with my life aligned with God's mission that he has given to his people. Another red flag that we should look at here is the the how. How does Israel go about adjudicating this situation? And I'm not going to try to argue that their verdict is wrong, but I do think, and there's some writers who agree with me, that there's something wrong about their process here. Basically, what you see happening is they just take the Levite's word for it. They just accept his account of everything that's happened. And, and when they go to, to Benjamin, they have already reached a verdict. They say, verse 12, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. Um, we'll get to that last phrase in a second. But first of all, who, who, we could ask, who knows what might have been different in Benjamin's response? if the other 11 tribes had gone a little more slowly and deliberately, if they had involved Benjamin in sort of an orderly sort of due process. Um, and that's not just bringing modern sensibilities of what due process looks like to bear. It's, it's to actually go back to Deuteronomy, go back to the law of God and see what was Israel supposed to do in circumstances like this. This is one writer points this out, uh, points us to Deuteronomy chapter 17, particularly. 
Just very relevant here. Deuteronomy 17, the Lord instructs Israel through Moses, if there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, and there, as it goes on, it's in the context of committing uh, idolatry, but surely the same kind of process would would apply by extension to this kind of heinous moral evil that they're dealing with here. And it goes on, and if it is told you and you hear of it, then what are they supposed to do? It says you are to inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. It says on the evidence of two or three uh, of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And that passage concludes with phrasing much like what appears in verse 13 here. It says, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And that's what Israel's trying, attending to do here. You look at verse 13, it says, um, uh, it says uh, that we want to purge evil from Israel. They're thinking in terms of Deuteronomy 17, but they're not following exactly the, the process set out in Deuteronomy 17. Now, I... I want to be careful. I'm not sure exactly how much we should make of this. And, and the historian doesn't comment explicitly, leading us along and saying, oh, see how they violated this passage from Deuteronomy. He, he doesn't uh, give us that commentary. But um, there's at least one writer I read that helpfully wonders, I, I think, here, doesn't it seem like a problem that here's, there's just one witness? Deuteronomy says, don't put anybody to death on the evidence of just one witness. People are jumping straight to executing judgment. They're acting like judge, jury, and executioner all at once. And I wonder if that makes it a little more understandable, perhaps. Not, not right, but understandable. Why Benjamin would refuse to deal with the rest of the nation. Why they would sort of have this circle the wagons response. Defy the other 11 tribes here. You have to ask, wasn't there a better way to do this? By following the law of God. Well, leaving behind some of those ambiguities in the process that led to the Civil War, now we come to the Civil War itself. This second section we're calling the defeat of Israel. It's very surprising here the way in the first two days of battle, Benjamin actually wins decisively. I uh, note those left-handed slingers that describes those 700 chosen men slinging left-handed. What does that remind you of in the context of the book of Judges? It may remind you of another left-handed man, Ehud, one of the, one of the very first judges early in the book. It was because he was left-handed that he was able to kill Eglon, king of Moab. Except now these left-handed warriors are not being deployed against a foreign king. They're being deployed against other Israelites. And apparently with very deadly effect. It's also surprising to see Israel losing the battle when they did first inquire of the Lord. And you almost get the sense... I think you do get the sense. I think this is the message of the of this section that the Lord is really sending Israel into battle to be defeated. 
pitting Israel against Israel in order to judge the whole nation. Think back, if you will, to the battle of Ai, uh, back in the book of Joshua, after the sin and deception of uh, Achan, you may remember this, and how Israel initially loses, and then later they deal with Achan, and then the Lord sends them into battle again, and they defeat Ai. There's a lot of parallels um, in this whole war to that one. We want to ask the question, why did Israel lose their first battle against Ai? Well, the reason is that the whole nation was under the covenantal judgment of the Lord. And now they find themselves all under that covenantal judgment once again. Why? Well, arguably that's been the story of the book. Um, We've seen throughout the book many reasons for Israel to have incurred the covenantal judgment of the Lord. And so, after just their their shock at these two initial losses and the death of so many of their countrymen, Israel, in verse 26, goes up to Bethel, weeping, sitting and fasting in the presence of the Lord, offering sacrifices. Israel here is just, they're broken. Broken by their failures and losses and by the knowledge now that they are living under God's severe covenantal displeasure against them. I want to make a quick note on chronology here. Look at verse 27 where it says that Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, was the high priest ministering before the Ark of the Covenant in those days. Now, in that verse, the word son there could simply mean descendant, and then you could have an indefinite number of generations. So that could easily place us at the end of the period of the judges. But assuming that it actually means son covering just one generation... That leads uh, some uh, writers to think that this whole story of this entire civil war is actually a flashback, a flashback back to something in the very early period of the judges, very soon after the death of Joshua, um, before many of the other events in in the book. You may remember back in chapter 2. Back in chapter 2, there's that scene where the Israelites gather together and the Lord rebukes them for uh, failing to carry out the conquest the way they were supposed to. And it says there in chapter 2, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now, some have gone so far as to suggest that um, this instant in chapter 20, this war in chapter 20, is actually one and the same with what's happening back in chapter 2, that it's the same uh, thing, the people weeping and offering sacrifices before the Lord. And if that is the case, then then this whole scenario is really what bookends the book of Judges. Now, I think it's hard to come down for certain on that position. It's possible. But what we can say for certain, the reason that observation is helpful, is because it shows us that at the very least, chapter 20 is echoing chapter 2. It's very much being presented to us as as very much connected with what's happening in chapter 2. This poignant moment of weeping and fasting and humility for Israel is intended at least to recall that other moment of fasting and weeping and sacrifice to our minds. Just as the way they inquire of God and God tells them to send Judah to go up first, well, that reminds us of the very first two verses of the book. That's the very first thing Israel does in the book of Judges. They ask God, who should go up first for us against the Canaanites? And God says, Judah shall go up. 
And so we're very much supposed to be considering and interpreting chapter 20 in light of and in comparison with chapters 1 and 2. Okay, we're getting a little bit in the weeds here. It's very intricate the way these relationships are happening across the book. But bear with me because the point is not complicated. The point is very simple. The point is that Israel has failed in their calling as the covenant people. When it comes to their covenant responsibilities to the Lord, Israel has completely and utterly dropped the ball. There's been a terrible failure of leadership. And as a result, Israel is broken and weeping and brought to the end of themselves by the covenantal displeasure and discipline of the Lord. This is one of the reasons why we sang earlier from Psalm 130, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. O Lord, who could stand? After that intermission of weeping and fasting, Israel comes back to the Lord and asks us one more time, shall we even go up again? Or should we cease? Should we go back to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or should we just stop now? And the Lord says, this time, not only go up, but this time he says, go up with the promise that I will indeed give them into your hand tomorrow. And so as with that second battle of Ai, this time Israel wins in a very similar way, the ambush on the city and so on. Um, but do you see how Israel is laboring here under a sort of double judgment They're getting both the same kind of judgment Israel got because of Achan's sin. And they're also getting the kind of judgment Ai got as a Canaanite city. The 11 tribes are getting the judgment that Israel got because of Achan. Benjamin is getting the judgment that Ai itself received at the end of that story. See, in in the end, Israel wins, experiences victory. But on the other hand, Israel really also loses, don't they? And, of course, that's the way it is in any civil war. Whoever wins, really everybody loses. And so it's really hard to take any joy, any sense of triumph and satisfaction away from this sort of victory. What we're really left with, what Israel is left with at the end of it all, is more of a sense of dread and loss and tragedy. This is not a happy day. For anybody in Israel, the losers or the victors. Because the fact is what what they should have been doing to the Canaanites, they're now doing to each other instead. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, men and beasts and all they found and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Not just Gibeah, apparently. And so you have to ask, wait a second, where is the justice in this? And what's happened to the dream of Israel victoriously driving out the Canaanites and dwelling in peace in a land flowing with milk and honey and in the presence of the Lord with an overflow of covenant blessings? And in its place has come this nightmare where the Israelites are killing one another and everybody loses.
think back for a second to that refrain that has marked this section. We didn't see it in chapter 20, but it's still lingering in the air from chapter 19, that in those days there was no king in Israel. We shouldn't miss the fact that King Saul was from what tribe? The tribe of Benjamin, right? And he was from what town in Benjamin? Town of Gibeah. And we also shouldn't miss the fact that King David was from what tribe? He was from the tribe of Judah, right? Judah, the first tribe sent up to fight against Gibeah in verse 18. And from what town was David? Well, he was from Bethlehem. Who else was from Bethlehem? Well, the Levite's concubine was from Bethlehem. This whole history is very much about Israel's need for a king, and not just any king, but a king after God's heart. But it's also not as simple as, it, as, as a, just a purely kind of pro-David, anti-Saul story. This is not pro-David propaganda or anti-Saul propaganda. There's so much more going on here. Because in this story, Benjamin loses, Gibeah loses, yes, but Judah also loses. Judah also loses. Revealing to God's people that the ultimate answer to Israel's problems, the ultimate healing for all of Israel's hurts, and the resolution for all of Israel's failure and sin is not going to come from Benjamin or from Judah. In fact, the answer is not to be found in Israel at all. It is only going to be found in the Lord. It's in verses 26 to 28 that we find, if not a glimmer of hope, then at least a marker pointing us in the right direction towards the glimmer of hope that this chapter leaves us wishing for. And that, I think, is right there in the heart of it. In that moment of Israel's humble and heartbroken tears in the presence of God, and they're weeping and they're fasting and saying, Lord, what do we do next? As they are looking to him, their true king, and acknowledging just how broken and empty and helpless they are. which is a realization that for all of the judgment and displeasure that God is showing in this chapter, that realization, that humility before the Lord, those tears are a gift that God in his severe mercy has given them through defeat, the grace to see. There is, there's no dressing up the last chapters of Judges. Chapter 19 was... Very bleak. Chapter 20, the bleakness doesn't let up at all. We also have to remember this is not the end of Israel's story. You know that a new daybreak is coming in King David. This is part of the setup for what's going to happen in 1 Samuel. New leadership, new faithfulness, new victories are coming. Best of all, you know the character of God of Israel's God, who at this point in Israel's history is indeed leading them through this kind of valley of the shadow of death. He's leading them like Jonah through the belly of Sheol as a nation. But what kind of God is this? This is a kind of God 
who brings life out of death. This is the kind of God who brings victory out of the grave, who out of the depths brings resurrection life. That's the kind of God who is at work even in this dark chapter. Not every chapter of the Bible gives us that entire story arc. But listen, we have to remember as the people of God that every chapter is somewhere on that same story arc. And this one too, for all of its bleakness, still leaves us hoping, still leaves us longing for the coming of Jesus. Jesus who himself would suffer the ultimate defeat because of the failures and sins, not his own, but of the people of God, yes. But out of that defeat, you know that God would bring victory. God would bring life. God would bring even resurrection. You may think this is not a very cheerful chapter with which to close this particular Lord's Day of the Year. I want to encourage us all to go from here sobered, humble, yes, but not discouraged, not despairing, not despondent because of what we have seen in this dark chapter. Because the God who is at work in this chapter is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. And he is the God who has shown in our hearts to give to us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of our risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. O Lord, from the depths we cry to you, from the depths of Judges 20, and from the depths of our own experience. Lord, even in the midst of a joyful day of celebration and worship, Lord, you know that for many gathered here, it comes as a bright spot in the middle of dark roads, hard suffering, hard uncertainties and anxiety about the future and always present the knowledge of our own failures, shortcomings, and sins. It's your people. Lord, we are so thankful that you are the God who brings life out of death. You have shown in our hearts, giving us the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We give you thanks for his suffering on our behalf that has brought about way of forgiveness, and we thank you for his powerful resurrection has given us the hope of everlasting life and victory in spite of ourselves with all of the glory due to him. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.